3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to late 30am. Good morning, listeners. It's the 24th of June and you are on 3CR Thursday morning breakfast at 7am. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, Rosie. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, listeners. Morning, everyone. Uh, it is, it's actually been a surprisingly, dare I say, warm morning this morning. Well, hey, I think everything that is above 10 degrees um, at this time of year <laughs> is, you know, warrants a little bit of celebration. Um, cue the clap track. No, there's, we don't, we don't, we don't have <laughs> I don't know how yet. to do that anymore. <laughs> yeah, I know there was, you know, there's the, uh, the applause tracks that we have, but, um, you know, we're not, we're not that savvy to, to have a little zing after every statement. <laughs> That uh, may get a little bit boring after a while. I know. You know, I need to, we need to keep things exciting by just bringing you incredible content. So um, what do we have on for today? Yeah. So first up, we're going to hear a bit of a segment from episode two of uh, Radio ANA. So that is a new program on 3CR talking about community and individual accountability, transformative justice, support, healing and prison abolition in NAM. And in this um, interview, Annalise and Arnie speak with Auntie Lisa, Keith and Iris about the Incarcerated Trans and Gender Diverse Community Support Fund. Cool. Um, and after that, we're going to hear from Lucy McMahon, who's the director and producer, and Celeste DeClaria Davis, who's a cinematographer and also producer. And they're joining us to talk about their work in progress documentary film, Things Will Be Different, which focuses on neighbors Will and Najat, who were displaced from their communities when the Walker Street public housing estate in Northcote or West Garth was uh, sold for private development. And we're also going to be joined by Will, who was a tenant at Walker Street and is one of those main subjects in the documentary. Um, and you can also donate to support the production of this documentary at documentaryaustralia.com.au forward slash project forward slash things dash will dash be dash different. And I know it's a long URL. Just look up things will be different on Documentary Australia because it is really important um, in the fight for uh, to save public housing in Victoria that these stories are told and um, amplified. Um, we'll we will then be joined by Anna Linton, Associate Producer of Cultural and Social Analysis at Western Sydney University, who joins us to unpack some of the current conservative uproar about critical race theory and to discuss the importance of critical engagement on racism. Her latest book, Why Race Still Matters, was published by Polity Press in 2020. And finally, we'll be speaking with Tom Sayers, a United Workers Union spokesperson and also a union organiser who is on site with striking General Mills workers at Rudy Hill in New South Wales. And John, uh, Tom's going to join us um, this morning just to discuss the ongoing strike action by workers there um, who are fighting for wage increases and to protect conditions. Yeah, and um, if people want to follow along on Twitter um, around that kind of organizing, the hashtags that they're using, I believe, are Pass on El Paso and uh, Workers 
workers raise wages, I believe. Um, but yeah, definitely an important thing to keep an eye on because this has been going for, for a little while and um, they've got, I believe, a chuffed page where they're, they're raising money as well for, for the workers on strike. Yeah, hopefully Tom can tell us a bit more about all of those actions as well. Cool. Um, yeah, so I don't know. I feel like today's going to be an interesting chat, I think, especially around um, Alana joining us on the critical race theory debacle. I think something that is that has really been playing on my mind is um, the Toni Morrison quote, um, I'm paraphrasing here, but the function <laughs> of racism is a distraction. And it's like, what is this uproar about critical race theory um, and this construction of this is like a big thing that needs to be talked about and addressed in parliament actually distracting us from right now so i hope that some of the chat with alana will go into that as well mm, that's true when these like kinds of issues really like blow up in the media you think oh so what else is happening behind closed doors like what bills are trying to be passed in parliament <laughs> well the mutual obligations bill for one people mm. should definitely keep an eye on that mm. yeah absolutely should we go to a csa and then headlines yeah Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. You're listening to 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8.55 a.m. And I'm going to kick us off with headlines for the 24th of June. This week, the RoboDebt Freedom of Information case returned to the Administrative Appeals trial, trial Tribunal. Justin Warren, an IT expert, has requested the business case document for what became known as the RoboDebt program. The documents in question were first requested by Justin Warren under Freedom of Information Laws in 2017, but were rejected by the then Department of Human Services, now Services Australia. Lawyers for Warren have sought the documents under Freedom of Information Laws, and they argued in the Administrative Appeals Tribunal on Wednesday that it was difficult to conceive of a stronger case for the most robust accountability. But the government says cabinet confidentiality would be undermined if the documents were released and its counsel, Andrew Berger, QC, flagged this week that the case may yet head to the federal court if government agency, Services Australia, loses the case. The Information Commissioner granted Warren access to 10 of the 13 documents in 2019, but the government appealed to the AAT. And also two weeks ago, the federal court judge, Justice Bernard Murphy, approved a settlement worth at least $1.8 billion for people wrongly pursued by the federal government's RoboDebt scheme. Officially known as the Income Compliance Program, RoboDebt led to 443,000 victims being issued unlawful, warf- 
unlawful welfare debts in what Justice Murphy stated as a shameful chapter in public administration. Um, and also, at the start of this week, uh, Monday the 21st of June, the coronial inquest into the death of Raymond Null Lindsay Thomas commenced, and that coronial inquest goes from Monday the 21st of June to Friday the 2nd of July. Um, the location is at the Coroner's Court of Victoria, and basically on the June, on June 25th, 2017, um, proud Gunai Gunachamara and Wiradjuri man Raymond Null Lindsay Thomas died in a police chase that began when he was driving home from a Sunday night dessert run to his local supermarket. And this inquest is taking place four years after Raymond's passing. And the family has welcomed all to attend and would really appreciate support during this very difficult time. So um, you can find out more information on the Dajawa Foundation's um, Instagram account. That is D-H-A-D-J-O-W-A underscore foundation on Instagram. Um, And it's at the Coroner's Court of Victoria, 65 Kavanaugh Street, South Bank. Um, please do show up if you can. It's an extremely difficult time. No family should have to go through this. And, um, you know, we send our support and strength and solidarity out to Auntie Debbie and Uncle Ray, the parents of um, Raymond. And just finally, I um, wanted to share some of RISE refugee survivors and ex-detainees' uh, media statement on Refugee Day or Week, which is um, the 20th of June, um, or so this week, basically. And basically, RISE have been calling for, um, you know, boycotting or blocking or not celebrating, whatever that means, Refugee Day or Week for about nine years now. Um, In their statement, they talk about, you know, how uh, eating so-called refugee food or listening to music, etc., isn't really doing anything in the fight for um, refugees and they're calling people to support them in solidarity. Um, They speak a bit about the UNHCR and how the UN and the UNHCR always towing the line with the UN Security Council members and um, and make a really important point that if, you know, we we can't see these um, human rights bodies taking action against Palestine um, when that genocide is unfolding very clearly before our eyes. What hope do West Papuans, Rohingyas, Darfurians, Hazaras, Tamils or Uyghurs have? Um, so, yeah, if you want to find out more, you can go to riserefugee.org to find out more there. Um, and also... Oh, and also just one last thing on that... Um, uh, share rise exitanees 10 demands that is riserefugee.org forward slash topic forward slash x dash detainees dash demands which really lays out the clear demands of um, rise and you know this is a self-determined and exitanee led movement so this is who we should be listening to on this yeah, thanks so much for that, um, Priya and Rosie. And just before we head into um, that segment of the um, episode two of Radio ANA, I just wanted to draw listeners' attention to a new crime prevention strategy that the Victorian government um, launched earlier this week. So they're putting more than $30 million into this strategy. And I read a bit about it. Um, the strategy sets up uh, a joined-up approach across different areas of the government to work in partnership with lots of community groups, local councils, businesses and support services. Um, but, yeah, they're only putting in about $30 million. And I just want to note that, you know, the amount that they're putting into building a new prison out at Cherry Creek is definitely in the billions of dollars. Um, and also um, one of the strategies that they're using is to um, give grants out to lots of small community groups, which actually is only 
you know, going to be in the like twenty to fifty thousand dollar bracket. Um, and so really, this is not a one. I want to know what crime prevention even means, and two. <laughs> Two, um, yeah, you can see that the way that they're distributing this money isn't actually going to have a lot of material benefit to the people that they say that they're supporting. Yeah, um, please keep an eye on how that unfolds and, you know, always feel free to get in touch with Thursday Breakfast um, if you do want to chat about this, if you do want to raise any issues, any concerns, we're at 3CR Thursday Breakfast on Instagram. Totally, and I think that point about the the small grants is really interesting because, yeah, it's like these government plans where they are giving money to something but then compared to the amount of money they're spending on something else it's kind of completely insignificant Mm, absolutely so on that note we might go into a segment from episode two of radio a and a where annalise and arnie speak with auntie lisa keith and iris about the incarcerated trans and gender diverse community support fund on this show, we're talking to Arnie Lisa, Keith and Iris from the Incarcerated Trans and Gender Diverse Community Fund. We're super excited to talk with you all. Yeah, so first, I guess, really, we were wondering if you could all tell us a bit about yourselves and what brings you to abolitionist organising. For me, what brought me to it, I guess, like, was me being incarcerated. I did a lot of, like, protesting and I was, like, trying to find my tribe with, like, different collectives and, like, in the last year I just found that, you know, the type of work that, uh, you know, that I was looking for, like, you kind of have to create create it yourself, like, based on, like, what other people have been doing, like, in the past that haven't quite, like, um, fitted into, like, the mainstream organising or, you know, ways of doing things when... You know, you have a lot of different intersections. And for me, that's being, like, an Aboriginal, like, gay man um, that's been incarcerated, you know. And and I think it's, yeah, it's, like, navigating, like, you know, like, the white supremacy, like, the heteronormative, you know, um, patriarchy, like, all of these, you know, groups, like, within our own communities, you know, that you have to navigate, like, like what what brought me to it was my own lived experience and um you know seeing other people that were like incarcerated like in a um yeah like in a worse like position than myself and what can I do like in what I know um of the system uh towards other people that are trying to collectively like make change so yeah that's what brought me to this work i've um i've had a long history of being incarcerated i'm a sister an aboriginal sister girl and i have um, been living since i was 15 as lisa and i um spent time in juvenile detention centers when i was younger and then once i turned 18 had a long history of drug use and incarceration in um, mostly men's prisons and because of my drug use and being alienated from my family I often didn't have any support when I went to prison and so you know I um when this opportunity come up to be part of the um trans prison fund I I jumped at it it was something that I'm passionate about about you know advocating for my community and 
trying to change and make life a little bit better for incarcerated trans people. And, you know, having that lived experience gives me that, you know, insight into how it is and, you know, what it's like to to be incarcerated and, and the, you know, the, the numerous, you know, stuff that, that we face as um, incarcerated trans people. And often many of us, you know, and me included when I was incarcerated, you know, my family didn't want anything to do with me. I was, you know, not making good choices in my life. And, yeah, so I was pretty much alone when I was incarcerated. And when things went down, it was, um, yeah, nobody to reach out to. But, yeah, that's what pretty much brings me to, you yeah, know, being involved. Thanks, Lisa and Keith. Yeah, for the listeners, I'm Iris Whitechapler. Uh, she, her, they, them pronouns. I guess it was a long process of, like, unpacking my complicity in the colonial violence of this country and politicization, being involved in different solidarity things that came to, like, abolition sort of politics and developing, like, connections with people inside, particularly trans people inside through, like, letter writing stuff, which has been facilitated. Yeah, and just following in the footsteps of what people are doing, like, in that space, in this, um, on this show as well. Yeah, that I've come to that sort of place and when, and became involved and when, like, there was some asking around, around setting up the, the fund to support people inside or people who have recently been inside. Thank you. Thanks, Iris and Annalisa and Keith for also sharing those parts about yourself too. And so, yeah, what is the Incarcerated Trans and Gender Diverse Fund and, how did it come about? Yeah, I think it came about last year because people were, were supporting trans people inside and some people were putting a lot of their own money into it. So, and there was an idea of like to collectivize it in some way or like put out or like widen what was already happening. Yeah, so a lot of it, like it comes from work that people, like trans people inside are already doing to support each other that we got the word out and like connections have been made from people involved in the fund with them as well. So it was responding to like, like a lot of pretty incredible organizing inside in terms of the conditions just to get access that's always denied, like basic healthcare, like HRT and stuff. It's pretty extraordinary how difficult things have been and still are. But, yeah, that's kind of a broad brush. Arnie, Lisa and Keith, do you see things that the fund is mainly used for? Yeah, like the fund that I've seen for, like being used for is um, like gender-affirming uh, clothing um, and underwear, like post-release support. Uh, this year, like, we were able to, like, get a mobility scooter and, you know, a lot of, you know, assistance with, like, emergency housing you know, for trans folk that are uh, leaving custody, you know, because it doesn't, yeah, like, it doesn't end, like, just, like, in custody, you know. I mean, yeah, like, a lot of the issues as well, you know, follow them uh, outside. And so, yeah, I guess, like, a lot of post-release support. And, yeah, like, it for me, it's, you know, just because I work with a lot of collectives, it's just getting, like, a lot of individuals that are, like, interested in, like, supporting. And like Iris was saying, like, it can be just, you know, something as simple, like, as, 
to somebody as letter writing, you know, and, and yeah, like whereas somebody, you know, likes cooking, like, you know, like cooking for somebody, you know, like that, that's where I guess like where I love like the fun because like a lot of aspects of mutual aid like are incorporated and, you know, you don't have to kind of wait for permission like to do things, you know, you can just go out and do it and yeah, like that's what I, what I find, um, about like, you know, this, um, potted people, like they just, um, you know, really want to support people in the best way possible, like, and yeah, reduce harm along the way. And another way we're helping with their fund as well is propping up and chopping up people's prison accounts. So a lot of trans people within prison don't have, you know, because a lot of the time trans women are put into um, segregation to keep them safe and so they don't have access to a lot of the jobs in prison. And um, so, you know, in order to make money and, and um, get your prison wage, you have, you know, I think that they have like a doll type system in there where you get, you know, a small amount of money. But, um, you know, in order to work, you have to um, do various jobs in, in prison. And, you know, a lot of trans people are restricted in what they can do for safety reasons or because they're in protective custody. So, you know, um, helping, you know, to top up their prison accounts and just to buy things like, you know, shoes or access things that they may need, toiletries. And as Keith said, you know, gender-affirming clothing, whether it be underpants or knickers or, you know, the chest binders for some of the trans guys that we've helped in prison as well. You know, you've all kind of already spoken to this a bit in terms of what you see as important about the fund. But what have you noticed, I guess, about the kinds of connections that you've been able to make already and how people have been able to, yeah, sort of access the fund, use the fund yeah, like, I guess for me, like, I also uh, organise with a group of uh, individuals here in um, Sydney and, like, across New South Wales. And also, you know, we connect with organisations, like, nationwide, but primarily it's working with trans women, uh, like, in custody and post-release. And, yeah, like, I guess, like, what we've found, you know, is if, you know, you work with somebody from, you know, as I mentioned before, like, understanding harm like without creating more harm and if you can work with somebody you know without you know the kind of society that we've been brought up in and that's you know punitive society what I've found that if you kind of humanize the person and the situation exactly how I wanted to be when I left custody I find that it opens up you know dialogues and and promotes conversations between community members, collectives and the individuals that have left custody not only address the harm that they've been causing but also the harm that they've had like uh, caused in their own lives so I think like all around it's a positive experience like if, and it's just about like humanizing the person and that's what I try to do in the work that I do and that I'm a part of. So I'm hearing there like if we humanize people and also support people with both like material aid as well as like human and social connection there'll probably be a whole bunch of people that aren't going back inside and this is in the context of like dominator culture that we're living in so that's not even thinking about addressing you know the actual systems of oppression that mean people are going inside in the first place but it seems like the fun is really you know trying to support people 
in, in their lives and in their communities as well. One thing is, we've had like a bunch of people inside that sort of like, they've sort of been at first reluctant to know whether the fund is for them and we've had to be like, yeah, this is for you. And so, yeah, the fund existence sort of challenges like the whole landscape that trans, criminalised trans people are disposable and there's nothing for them. But that's one thing that we've noticed. You're listening to 3CR Thursday Breakfast. And we're going to continue the interview that Annalise and Arnie from Radio ANA have with Auntie Lisa, Keith and Iris about the Incarcerated Trans and Gender Diverse Community Support Fund. I guess talking a bit about abolitionist organising or, you know, people sort of said a little bit about their experiences or thoughts about the prison industrial complex and about what kind of community organising or support you see in general as necessary for anti-prison or anti-police movements i think it's um like as annie lisa even mentioned like i think it's, there's a lot of things like for myself as like an ally like that like i don't understand like about people's situation like in prison so i think with the fund i think it's really important that we have people that are across all different fields that can create a I guess, a micro lens on, on the experiences, you know, that certain people go through at a particular time, you know, in, in, in their journey, like uh, in, in custody and post-release. But I think you also find, like, like abolition, like it's not something new, it's not something that's, like, being recreated. Like, these are things that have happened in community. Like, with which, you know, chosen families, I think, you know, that's people, you know, caring for one another, like, when, you know, their traditional families have thrown them out. So I think, like, if we want to create change for, for ourselves, in, in my case, as like, as an Aboriginal gay man, I think, like, we really have to look towards, like, our brother boys and sister girls that have kind of already gone through these experiences and uh, created support networks for themselves and also, like, disabled folk yeah like if you haven't you know watched Crip Camp on like Netflix it's like you know about like a group of disability right activists like that came together and uh you know took control of government buildings like and the Black Panthers fed them for 28 days during their sit-in you know and I think like this organizing it, it, it the fund included like it it's just a people like a group of people like that are passionate in a certain area and um, how do we then get like mainstream society, mainstream collectives like to support this work and, and not only support our work, but then go out and create this type of work in their own communities with their own local prisons. And Yeah, it's such a big question. I don't know where to start really, but I, yeah, I've been thinking a bit about like a lot of the focus sometimes goes on to women's prisons and, and we have the thing that like the, like the prison does where it places the overwhelming majority of trans women in men's prisons. And it's really good. There's lots of organizing around women's prisons, but sometimes it does like forget that there's trans women in men's prisons and, and it doesn't get to this like, and you can't just like call for things for women's prisons. You have to like take the call to men's prisons as well and how the prison reinforces like the white supremacist gender binary yeah, there's something sometimes missing that it's hard to articulate around organizing around women's prisons that doesn't that dis- disappears like trans women inside men's prisons. And a lot of the trans, a lot of the sister girls are not being 
recorded in the men's prisons as being transgender. A lot of them are being recorded as, as men. So I think there's an even greater number of people going in and out of the prison system who aren't being clocked as being transgender. They're just being written off as being men because they don't fit the stereotype of what um, a transgender woman looks like or they might come from a community where they don't have access to HRT and, they, you know, they may not want to medically transition, but, you know, still they're transgender. And, yeah, and, you know, I remember a few years ago we were advocating in the Northern Territory with the Northern Territory um, prison system with Star Lady who was doing some work with her. And the, um, the Northern Territory said, oh, we don't, we don't have any, we, we, we don't have any, um, transgender women in the prison and we haven't had any through the prison up there. And yet, you know, we knew people that had been through the prison system up there. So we called them out on it. What was their response, Annalisa? Oh, you know, just to go into denial. And, yeah. Not an issue. We, you know, we haven't had anybody, and yeah. And I think it happens not just the Northern Territory. I think it's across the country where you know sister girls are not, or you know, not even just sister girls. Some people who are, you know, non-binary and may not fit the stereotype are just not even being. There's no real statistics out there to let us know how big this issue is, and you know, what are the the real issues and, you know, being raped in prison and the process to be, to be able to report that is, it's really limited and, yeah. And I think that's one of the things that this fund does. It gives, it's another avenue to make them connections as well to, you know, people applying for money can, you know, have also disclosed stuff and reached out. And just then we heard Annalise and Arnie from Radio ANA speaking with Auntie Lisa, Keith and Iris about the Incarcerated Trans and Gender Diverse Community Support Fund. So that was episode two of Radio ANA. And if you wanted to catch that, um, that played on Monday the 14th of June at 11pm on 3CR. So you can just head to 3cr.org.au website to find that episode. It's also been podcasted on um, Radio a and a dot c a r r d dot co. Um, so yeah, definitely either check out that website or just head to the 3CR website to catch that episode. Uh, I also just want to give a bit of a plug for episode three of Radio ANA, where Annalise and Arnie are going to interview Bo Spearham about frontier war stories and Aboriginal responses to conflict and harm pre-colonisation. And that episode is going to air on Monday the 19th of July at 11pm on 3CR. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. You're on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM and it is 7.32 in the morning. Now we're going to go to a track. This is Still Standing by Kobe D and Leah Knight.
Could you imagine being taken as a kid? Stolen from your mother by the hands of a pig Being placed in our home when no lovers ever shown In your heart you no longer want to live You used to dream big that your world's come crumbling down Ain't no mother, ain't no father or no family around Just to see your black faces with tears in their eyes Who were being fed lies that their mothers all died Just imagine in a place you can't escape And you're just in the boys left across you get raped Yeah that's harsh and surreal but believe me this is real You will never understand the pain my people now feel You just hate and criticize Lying to the truth It's in the past is your only excuse So you don't wanna believe That my people still grieve In our heart there's a pain That ain't never gonna leave We were taken And they said it's for the best As they ripped that black baby From a screaming mother's chest Let her deal with the stress She's down and depressed As she watched all the rest Get beat up in the press Such a shame that our people Still see this now Kids are taken by the system now Are we supposed to come together And make it through the weather Forget about our past And we can see the future's better So this makes me sick January 26 is the day you have your barbies And you all get pissed But let me tell you how it is for my people It's the day that we survived all evil And still standing strong I said we still standing strong We still stand strong We still stand strong And we still standing strong We still stand strong. We still stand strong. We still stand. We fight for our people. Fight to be heard. Fight for our right to express these words. No recognition for the oldest culture living on earth. Instead, they ride to see a drunk on the curb. But no, we still push through. Like, really, what they teaching in school? They made it seem like we were savages. No morals or rules. When we had villages and doctors and man made tools. Without our help, you would have looked like fools. You must have no idea. Philip could have died by the spear. But trying to take away a culture that was already here. You raped our women, took our children, all the feelings we fear. Just know the pain we feel is all still here. And don't expect it to leave. Until you see our need to grieve For the ones that go before us so the next could breathe For our people who still die because of your disease It's not as easy as your eyes to see We've got to be that change Fight to see this culture remain Uncle Charlie, Uncle Chica fall through all of that pain You see our classrooms are empty Our jails are full My cousin cost 10 years Where yours graduated school It's a pity I see it in my city They wonder why our generations walk around shitty Full of unhealed wounds Trauma that was passed with a spoon They fed us lies and told us shoot for the moon But now we still stand strong Stand up. Stand up. Strong. We still stand strong. We still stand strong. We still stand strong. Stand up. Stand up. We still stand strong. We still stand strong. We still stand strong. You're listening to 3CR Thursday Breakfast and that track there was Still Standing by Kobe D and Leonite. 
So we've just got another new headline for you, and this is based off a media release uh, that came out from the Refugee Action Coalition. And um, we were speaking about Refugee Week before, and some of those concerns about this, you know, ongoing structural violence against people that are seeking asylum in so-called Australia. And um, in a sharply divided 4-3 decision, it has just been found that the High Court has upheld the government's appeal um, against a single-judge federal court that released a Syrian refugee after finding his detention unlawful because government was neither processing a visa or acting to remove him and basically has found again that indefinite administrative detention of non-citizens, mostly asylum seekers and refugees, is lawful in Australia, um, which is an absolute farce. It's, it's awful. And I think something that is really important to keep in mind considering yesterday's breaking news about the immigration minister, Alex Hawke, intervening in the case of the Biloela family and um, exercising his power under Section 195A of the Migration Act to grant uh, the family a three-month bridging visas to, to have work and study rights. Um, because RISE has consistently been drawing attention to the fact that um, the Biloela family are being used as an exceptional case. Like, of course, government's going to take action on that. Um, while there are so many men, um, mainly single men, like languishing in detention in community, um, but also offshore as well. Mm. It really plays into the narrative, um, I guess, of like wanting to be saviors as well, um, in the case of the Biloela family. And that's just how the mainstream media um, yeah, views like a lot of these cases. Absolutely, and it's also, yeah, with the RISE's um, call for, you know, taking action rather than s celebrating or um, doing these kind of performative gestures for Refugee Week, like it really plays into that same thing where it's about the, you know, the, the Australian citizen who's doing these things, like mm. fighting for the Billa Wheeler family rather than, of course, that family should be, you know, here and should be safe, but um, it becomes about the person fighting for that rather than those people themselves. Mm. Yeah. And um, I mean, the, you know, it's it creates, you know, using this sort of um, sort of trauma porn kind of mm. um, logics mm. and the idea of, you know, playing off people's empathy because, you know, children are affected, um, a family is affected and people relate to this nuclear family structure and also like these small children um, and circulating pictures of children that are traumatized and in pain. Um, which we want to reiterate as well, Rise Refugee never does for, mm. um, you know, to grab attention or for funding. You know, their their work is based on, you know, people who have experienced these awful um, these awful systems, you know, supporting each other now that they are in community. Um, but, yeah, basically creating this, this narrative of exceptionalism around the Biloela family um, is what sort of allows a lot of this to go unseen. Um, and, you know, it's not to say that we, you know, it's, it's absolutely fantastic that the Biloela family has been granted um, these visas and that they are able to, to go home. But, you know, the issue is, is not reducing it to an individual case and then everybody forgetting about all of the other people that are currently detained. Yeah, which is exactly how the government wants to play it. So maybe mm. we should just read a few of RISE's demands regarding mm. Refugee Week. So the first, um, they have a yeah 10 demands. So the first is 
rather than listening to happy or sad stories, attending panels, etc., perhaps you could go and protest outside of PM Scott Morrison's office, outside of the Minister for Home Affairs Karen Andrews' office or the Immigration Minister Alec Hawke's office and actually amplify the voices of ex-detainees. Um, to defund and divest from refugee and um, detention industry. And if that sounds complicated, perhaps um, you could visit riserefugee.org slash topic slash detention dash divestment. Malika, did you want to read some of those as well? Yeah. Um, number four is get involved in the ex-detainee-led campaign to end the Australian government's white supremacist refugee policy for torturing and abusing refugees in detention centres and um, again if you're wanting some more information around that um, you can look at the RISE refugee um, website um, forward slash topic forward slash sanction dash Australia. Um, the fifth kind of demand is share RISE ex detainees 10 demands mm. um, and you can look at that on their website as well. Um, yeah and I mean the um they also raised the question of how many people actually support Ex-Detainees Day, which falls on the 14th of September. And this is a day that's not run by the UN or UNHCR, um, which is, uh, they describe a privileged organization headed by mostly non-Ex-Detainees. And finally, you know, really just support self-determined organizations run by and for refugees like RISE, who don't use their members' <laughs> photos as poverty porn, don't take funding from or take selfies with government or UN officials. And you can find um, you find out how to donate on their website as well. So that is riserefugee.org. And please do um, chip in. You know, they've got a food bank that they run um, to make sure that people are uh, able to be provided with their basic supplies. Great. And on that note, we might head to another track. This one is First Casualty by Pataphysics. The news is PR for the rich. Shifting the focus and maintain a group thing. Manufacturing consent is building up the scent. But nothing happening even with 99%. Yo, it ain't about facts, what that narrative lacks. And about rejoining borders on the cognitive map. Yeah, damn it. Propaganda gone out of hand. The plan to give a refugees a lifetime ban. The leaders had their food. It started in their schools. Preventing revolutionaries was the golden roof. No need to control with that fear and violence. Scribble with apathy, uh, hear the silence Power will always take, subsidized by the state Oversaturation of information, but what is fake? Political processes don't work Systems of government don't work Free market economics don't work Legal, judicial, homie, it don't work That old grey Institutions irrational, resistance transnationals, production of capital, hope within the people, woke dreamers, vote fractional. Now it don't matter if the thieves get caught. Try to avoid the consequence, legislation been bought. There's no critical thought, cause it's never been taught. Yasin's after me and I'm your weed, don't see the whole four. Yeah, the devil's in a picture. I'm a two tricks up in our campaign, reactionary politics. Private military security forces, mercenaries for hired easily cross borders, flying under the banner of corporate orders, no safe for local activists or even reporters, finite probability, total 
swing control change faster than the people can adapt Salam Habibi. Salam Habibti. This is Marushti and Luqman from Salam Radio Show. Tune in on Sundays from 4 till 5 p.m. on 3CR for some modern Arabic mazika. Salam Radio Show will be bringing you every week a search of new, modern and reinterpreted sounds of Arabic mazika ranging from trap, rap, hip-hop, pop, R&B, experimental, ambient, and electronic music. Yalla habaybna. Shunatrin. Join us every Sunday on Salam Radio Show. Mainstreaming Arabic Mazika. You're listening to 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8 by 5 a.m. And that track that we just played before was First Casualty by Pataphysics. And now we are joined by Lucy McMahon and Celeste DeClario Davis, who are involved in producing the documentary um, Things Will Be Different, which is about the Walker Street public housing estate. And we're also joined by Will, who is one of the main subjects of the documentary as well. Um, so, yeah, uh, Lucy, Celeste and Will, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on 3CR Thursday Breakfast. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks for having us, Priya. Hi. Hello. Yeah, no worries. It's going to be, um, um, yeah, bear with us because a three-person three call can sometimes be a little difficult to juggle, but I'll try and um, make sure that people know who's talking. Um, so maybe we'll begin um, with a bit of a talk about, um, about the Walker Street estate. So, Will, um, would you be able to tell us, um, you know, how long you've lived at Walker, how long you had lived at Walker Street, and a bit about the home and community you had there, and the importance of public housing? Sure. So, look, I think altogether, I lived there about seven years, and uh, although the, you know, probably after about three years was when the announcement that they were going to demolish it was made. The so the estate was well, gone now, but it was. Uh, or late 50s, early 60s public housing estate in Northcus the, on the Merry Creek. And uh, about, I think, 85, the mainly three-bedroom units, and they call them walk-ups in public housing, and they're walk-ups because they're three storeys high and you mm. have to walk up the stairs. The And, yes, yeah, so the mainly three-bedroom, we did a, had a three-bedroom unit, Look, it was the old but very well designed for the time and probably now. You know, like mm-hmm. this was 70 square metres for three bedrooms. So you couldn't build it now, but sort of almost a little bit in miniature. Actually, really, really well designed. And, uh, look, 
most of the people on the estate were families. There would have been you know, certainly at least 10 languages. There were, you know, people who were you know, old people who lived there for 40 odd years, but I think most people had been there, you know, five to 10. Mm-hmm. And uh, mainly families, some, you know, there'd be 10 people cheerily, to be cheerfully living in a three bedroom unit, or and others were just, you know, one person who's 80 years old. Ten languages, same with people, all sorts of things. So it was, you know, obviously, it's a real mix of people. The and but and it was, a, you know, in my sense of the word, it really was a community. It doesn't mean it was functional in every way, but it, well, it was like it did feel like home. Mm. Yeah, uh, I mean, and, uh, yeah, and and you know, no no community is perfect, but it's still um, it's still a community, right? And um, of course. Well, I think, you know, in most cases, we don't have communities anymore. You know, the people live in areas we move around a lot, or young people do anyway, and it's like we don't actually have a geographically located community anymore. Our community is partly online and partly spread around the city, but this, it was a community that was co-located. Yeah, I think that's really important to emphasize. Um, so... Can you tell us, um, maybe, and th- this is open to all of you, a bit about the fight to save Walker Street and, and what eventually did happen? I feel like, Will, you can probably speak to this best because you were involved from the very beginning. Yeah. Look, initially, we tried to, you know, like, firstly, a lot of people were happy that it was being knocked down because in the estate, because there is no, you don't tend to get a choice where you go in public housing and a lot of people have been put in Northcote where they would have rather been in, you know, Werribee or something. You know, like, that's where their families were. So some, some people were pleased. The, uh, those ones who weren't, you know, well, you know, we did try to organise a whole range of different protests and, you know, pro- and groups to try and uh, draw attention to back to, you know, it seems absolutely outrageous to be knocking down existing public housing and there was such a shortage of it generally. And, uh, yeah, so the, the different groups formed different alliances. We got help from political parties along the way to a degree. The, and you know, probably over a 1,000 people at different times were involved. But it was really very difficult to get any sort of traction in the mainstream media. And it's a complicated subject and... So the majority of people, they don't see how, I guess, how it could, how it matters to them. And uh, so, yes, the, you know, the, uh, like, it's become a bit disheartening, I have to say. The, um, mm. And, yeah, look, along the way, obviously, um, you know, like, one of the groups was formed, Lucy was connected with, and then, you know, that's, Generally, what happened is so many people became involved in different ways to try and help us, but it didn't work. Mm. So that's just a bleak perspective, but the, mm. so many, so many events. And mm. Yeah, right maybe I'll just add to that, Will, just maybe for those people who don't know that Walker Street was one of 11 um, walk-ups in inner-city Melbourne that were knocked down as part of what was called the Public Housing Renewal Program, um, which is now been turned into the big housing build and it's essentially this kind of rollout of state government selling off public housing land throughout 
uh, Victoria, selling it to private developers and turning it into community housing. Um, and community housing, I think, sounds good, but it actually, we don't know what it's going to be like. It's going to be run by private developers or community housing groups that are being run for profit. Um, mm. It doesn't have to prioritise those most in need. Um, the for example, the Walker Street housing estate, and I think this um, is the same for many of the redevelopments, the amount of public housing dwelling that is built there will actually house less people. So we're in the middle of a housing crisis and the government's rolling out this initiative that not only displaces people like Will and Najat, who are in our documentary, but also um, isn't actually doing anything to address the housing shortage um, for yeah. people who, who need it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so in terms of, I guess, raising uh, raising the profile of this story, um, Lucy and Celeste, what prompted you to make a documentary about the sell-off and private redevelopment and sort of telling um, Will and Najat's stories? Mm, um, I guess I started going to the Safe Public Housing Collective meetings after learning about the Public Housing Renewal Program from Will about three years ago. And... Um, there I met Lucy and we both have a background of film and photography and we started talking about how to, how we could amplify the Safe Public Housing Collective and, um, bring attention to the Public Housing Renewal Program. And we started filming Walker Street because we also thought it was just important to document that space, um, for archival purposes. And, um, yeah, I guess like after three months, we kind of realized we were making a documentary about Will and we met Nejat through Will. And yeah, it's a feature length documentary now. But um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I would just say as well, like Celeste and I both have lived experience um, in public housing. And I guess mm. that offered both of us like, you know, um, security and like upward mobility and allowed us access to things in the inner city that we otherwise may not have had access to. And so when I personally found out about the public housing renewal program, I felt like, yeah, kind of compelled to try and do something. And given that, yeah, my background is in film, I thought um, perhaps making a documentary or creating some kind of visual media to try and bring this attention uh, this issue to the attention of like other young people within our communities who mm. maybe don't understand the nuances of what's going on and maybe haven't thought about the fact that public housing is actually like a really integral part of um, mm. making the city accessible for all different kinds of people even if you're mm. a young person who never thinks you'll need to access public housing having like a healthy stock of public housing in the city will make life easier for us as renters in the private market because there won't be as much competition and, and things like this. So we really just wanted to try and find a way to bring the issue to the eyes and attention of, um, yeah, young people and people, like all sorts of people in our community. And we thought making a film would be a good way to do this. Yeah. Um, and, I mean... I guess this is also a question um, for, for all of you, maybe starting with Will. What do you hope that the documentary um, captures and conveys um, to the audience when it's finally released? Well, look, I suppose for me personally, personally I, like I'm, you know, it's a record of, you know, like some, view, some part of a record of part of my life and Najat's life and her and our family's lives. And actually, you know, in a way, just that you know, there is a real issue in our society and public housing maybe particularly that we forget. So no one knows why we build public housing any more than they you know, know why we fight wars overseas. It just sort of happens and then it stops and life's too busy. And maybe, you know, so it actually records that 
there was this community there that got bulldozed. And that seems to me sort of important. And look, the other thing I you know, really hope is that it um, you know, focuses people's attention on the fact that there was this thing, or there is this thing, but it's really diminishing called public housing, which was a, an integral part of the housing market. And the housing market now is really intimidating for anyone who's young. And if you want to have a family, how do you get secure housing unless you've got, you know, a trust fund? Really, you know, and I needed public housing partly because I had children. If I was on my own, sure, I could have afforded to share house somewhere, but I couldn't afford, mm. you know, to, at the time, to, to house myself and my kids. Mm. So I think that broader idea of people actually realising there is this approach to housing us, them, their friends, their children or their families or whatever, that um, we're losing and if we don't have it, the world is going to be a worse place. Yeah, mm. definitely. And Lucy and Celeste, I think um, I think the documentary will like show the richness of com- community in public housing too. I mean, Will and Najat, uh, they were neighbours, and now they're incredibly good friends. And um, how th- those communities support each other in such like a important and beautiful way. Mm. Yeah, I guess that's really important in terms of, like, destigmatization and, like, yeah. maybe bringing forward that, like, yeah, these are the kinds of people who live in public housing. They're people who have bring a lot of value to our community. They bring a lot of richness to these inner-city suburbs, like Will and Najat. If you spend some time with them watching this doco, yeah, you'll realise they're, like, funny, really intelligent, really beautiful people. And, you know, these are the kinds of people who are being displaced um, because of these, like, abstract policy decisions mm. that get made and they're being displaced from, yeah, the communities that we live in. And, um, yeah, I guess I guess we're hoping that, like, or I'm hoping that the documentary will um, sort of... Uh, yeah, kind of get people to engage emotionally with the issue through seeing Najat and Will's very personal experience. Um, and then the hope, I guess, is that like through the release of the documentary, we can run an effective impact campaign that sort of, um, I guess, grabs people and says, okay, now you've been emotionally moved by this documentary and this personal story. These are the sort of campaigns that you can mm. jump on board or these are the actions that you can take in order to try and address some of the um, broader issues that are going on around this issue, this um, topic in, in Victoria. Mm. Yeah, and I mean, like, even after watching the sort of teaser trailer, um, mm. because because that's sort of in the, in the area that I live in. And so mm. I have uh, many times ridden past Walker Street, you know, on the way past Russell Station. And I'm just like, wow, that's, you know, that's a part of my community that's not there anymore. Mm. These are people's homes. These are people's lives. Mm. And now, um, you know, have, these have been uprooted again. Um, mm. So um, maybe to close off, how can people get involved to support both the fight to save and build more public housing and also to uh, finish and release things will be different? Um, yeah, sure. So <clears throat> I guess um, a good thing is to join your local tenants and supporters groups. There's lots of them based around Melbourne. We're all part of the Safe Public Housing Collective, which is kind of like a coalition of a few different tenants and supporters groups, but there's different ones. You can just sort of Google your local area and see if there's a public housing tenants and supporters group. There's also the public, Safe Public Housing Collective is running a change.org petition at the moment that's asking Dan Andrews to um, prioritise public housing in his 10-year um, plan for... Um, 
to for the future of um, sort of state planning for housing in Victoria. So you can find that that um, petition is in the link tree of the Safe Public Housing Collective Instagram. <laughs> That's a bit of a mouthful, but um, yeah, so you can follow Safe Public Housing Collective on social media. There's heaps of like yeah petitions that will pop up that you can sign. If people want to support the documentary, um, we have a Documentary Australia Foundation page. So if you Google Documentary Australia Foundation, things will be different. You can go to that website and um, make a tax-deductible donation to the project, and um, all of that money will just go towards the completion of the film and um, funding some screenings for the community engagement and impact campaign. Um, and you can also shoot us an email at things will be different film at gmail.com if you want to get involved with the impact campaign. Awesome. Um, and I do just want to do one last little shout mm-hmm. out. There's lots that people can do. Um, Najat, who is the what, the other main subject in the doctor who couldn't join us because she's dropping her kids to school. She um, is starting a small cleaning business um, and she's looking for clients around, she lives in, uh, yeah, around the northern suburbs. So if you are interested in um, getting a domestic household cleaner, you can also send us an email at thingswillbedifferentfilm at gmail.com and we can help put you in touch with the chat. Awesome. Thank you so much, uh, Will, Lucy and Celeste for taking the time to talk to us. I would think people should apply for public housing. That is, in a way, the best way to support it. But they now, the the application process is now for community housing or social housing. Mm. That includes all forms of government has housing. Now, the waiting list, yes, 20 years or something, depending on your category. However, it's always going to be 20 years. So if you put your name on now, well, maybe, you know, and if they, if they build more, it will be faster. But it is, uh, if people actually apply for it, it doesn't cost anything, you know, then, mm. and the waiting list, then just what's happened is most people don't even think of applying mm. now because, mm. it's, well, I would never get it. But actually, that is one way of showing support for it. And then, you know, you never know. You might get something there. It is a much uh, more civilised way of um, really paying rent because it's a percentage of your rent rather Mm -hmm. than a fixed prop amount. So probably it's a percentage of your income. And a lot of these places, you know, are much better than you could rent. Yeah, no, this is... So I would see everyone, anyone who has not got a trust fund I believe that counts for a lot of people. Um, so thank you. Thank you so much for raising that important point, Will. And um, thank you all again. Um, take care, and we really appreciate you joining us. Okay. Have a lovely day. Thank See you. Bye-bye. And that was Will, Lucy, and Celeste, who've been involved in uh, creating a documentary uh, called Things Will Be Different about the Walker Street public housing estate in Northcote, which has been demolished and sold off for uh, private redevelopment. And um, we'll give you another plug for where you can support that later, but follow Safe Public Housing Collective across social media. Um, You're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast. So, here you are, too foreign for home, too foreign for here, never enough for both. Ijuoma Umebinyo, Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong and how do we build a home away from home? 
Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Jan. Slavery is back. Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force, yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. Where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view. The people who work in the prison system would have another. And I think it's up to people to decide uh, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio, 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. You're listening to 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast, and it is just past 8.05 in the morning. And now we are joined by Alana Lenton, who's an Associate Professor of Cultural and Social Analysis at Western Sydney University. And Alana's joined us to unpack some of the current conservative uproar about critical race theory and to discuss the importance of critical engagements with racism. So, Alana, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Thanks very much for having me. Um, So just for a bit of background, on Monday, the 21st of June, One Nation Senator Pauline Hanson uh, received coalition senators support to pass a motion, um, largely symbolic, to ban um, and uh, sorry, to ban and finally amended reject critical race theory being taught in schools. Mm -hmm. And this was raised in response to proposed changes to the national curriculum, which were announced in April, which would include more accurate discussion of First Nations experiences of colonization, including naming invasion, and um, also more emphasis on cultural diversity and inclusion. And then um, Mm -hmm. earlier this year, Assistant Attorney General Amanda Stoker had expressed concern that the Australian Human Rights Commission is pursuing an anti-racism campaign, um, claiming this was too close to critical race theory. Um, Mm -hmm. So yourself and uh, Dr. Debbie Bargali uh, co-authored a piece in The Guardian addressing the importance of critical thinking about race in Australia and addressing, you know, some of these controversies. Um, So Mm -hmm. for listeners who aren't familiar and considering some of the active mystification of the term by conservative commentators, what does critical race theory refer to and where and how did it originate? Yeah, thanks for, for asking me. I think it's really an important question, but I do want to foreground it by saying one thing, which I think should probably be obvious to most of your listeners, that this moral panic that's naming something called critical race theory, and it's obvious that the proponents of this argument against critical race theory have no clue what it is, right? That this moral panic has nothing to do with the contents of critical race theory itself. The critical race theory is a relatively... Um, you know, uh, marginalized corner mm. of academia, certainly in Australia, um, you know, there are very, very, there, there are no universities uh, that have a program in critical race theory. And certainly critical race theory 
isn't taught in schools. But I think, you know, I've said this before, and I think, you know, saying that we shouldn't be worried about critical race theory because it isn't taught kind of sends the wrong message Mm. because actually what we do need, as Debbie and I argued in our paper, is much more critical thinking about race in Australia. So I think it's important to realize that they don't care what the contents of critical race theory are, and they don't know, and they're never going to find out. But for your listeners, (laughs) obviously, it's important to say, well, what is critical race theory? Well, just very briefly... It originates in the 1970s and 1980s, mainly as a critical response within the field of critical legal studies. So it's important to note that it comes out of law, Mm -hmm. and it mainly comes out of a group attached to Harvard Law School um, and elsewhere. So one of the main proponents is Derek Bell, later followed up by Kimberly Crenshaw, who's well known for, you know, theorizing intersectionality, among others, uh, Patricia Williams and Mari Masudar, some of the sort of the, the central names that are generally attached, but there are many, many more. And it's important to note that critical race theory travels far beyond uh, later from the legal sphere, but really at its origins, it was about exposing the function of race, race here understood not as a biological concept, yeah. but as a social uh, structure um, embedded in uh, U.S. settler colonial um, society, a society founded on slavery, to expose the continuing function of race as a mechanism of power within the so-called colorblind U.S. legal system that was instituted after the passing of the Civil Rights Act in 1965. So in other words, to break it down, they were saying, you know, racism is still at play, although the law officially says that race doesn't play a role. So you're not going to be treated unequally because you're black, because the law says that it doesn't. But these people are saying, well, actually, de facto, it's still in play, but we Mm -hmm. can't see it. And we want to point that out. So critical race theory seeks to understand the origins of white supremacy, so the structure of whiteness, white supremacy and racial power, and how it operates in law and later on, obviously, in social structures, politics, uh, economics, etc. And the second important Part of that, obviously, is that it seeks to bring about change. So it seeks to um, to challenge what Crenshaw called the vexed bond between the law and um, racial power. So that's kind of the nutshell. It's travelled very far uh, into, I suppose, one, and this is probably why the proponents of the attack on CRT are so worried. I think one of the main spheres in which critical race theory has been implemented is within thinking about education. So how to do education on race within Mm. universities and schools. But that doesn't mean that something like a doctrine of CRT is rolled out uh, within school programs. In fact, nothing could be further from the truth, be it in the U.S., Australia or anywhere else. Yeah, and I guess the way that it's discussed about so much is that it's this, um, yeah, doctrinaire kind of program that's being rolled out rather than thinking about it in terms of what it allows us to do, which is basically, you know, draw attention to these uh, structural conditions of racism and power. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, you discuss it as a, as critical race theory, as a, as a toolbox of ideas, and I'm wondering if you could unpack that a little for us. Yeah, absolutely. So, again, that was just in order to oppose the idea that it's some kind of doctrine. Um, You know, if you follow this program, then (laughs) something will happen, right? No, it's it's ideas flowing from this basic idea that race has become something that is embedded within structures uh, that are colonial, right? So if we think about U.S. society, Australian society, European societies as 
in the modern era, era as being formed by colonization and the, you know, the, the accompanying uh, dispossession, exploitation and discrimination of indigenous people and other negatively racialized people, then it's not enough to say, we don't believe in that stuff anymore. Uh, we've moved on from there. That's all in the past um, and expect everything to flow from there. In fact, what we see is that, um, you know, and we know this just in the realms of policing, incarceration, and education, and healthcare, we've seen this most um, acutely with the COVID crisis, et cetera, we can see that there are racialized disparities. And this is to do with the fact that our economic systems are racialized, uh, our health systems, our education systems, our political systems, our legal systems yeah. are, in fact, shaped by ideas of race. Now, the problem with people who don't understand CRT, and in fact, the problem with many people who who are also anti-racist, to be frank, is that we still have a biological understanding of mm. what race is. So people will say, listen, I don't see color. I don't think that you're any different to me just because you're X, Y, or Z, right? Mm -hmm. um, and they think that that's enough, but they don't understand that race has got very little to do with, um, you know, with biology, that biology is one way in which racialized power expresses itself, mm. but that racialized power is also um, relies on a whole range of other discourses or other, you know, other forms of expression. So culture, religion, nationality, geography, all of these things are, you know, are part and parcel of how the racial project, you know, forms itself as an idea and is rolled out. And, yeah. and, and most significantly, race is something which is there to enact power in order to manage from, a, from the perspective of white supremacy manage and organize and categorize and so on human difference in order to better exploit and dominate uh, indigenous lands, indigenous peoples, enslaved peoples, and other negatively racialized peoples. So critical race, the critical race toolbox uses a variety of approaches, as I said, the law, um, you know, education, etc., to expose the functioning of race. Mm -hmm. Uh, how it works in detail. So it might look at an educational curriculum and say, well, look, let's look at this and say, what's being left out here? What do we need to include? Whose perspectives haven't we listened to, etc." Absolutely. And um, just briefly, um, in terms of the educational environment and the funding environment in Australia, I was wondering if you could mention, um, you know, the actual possibilities for studying um, or, for, or for having a critical analysis of race in our educational institutions. Mm. Well, I mean, I think the, the changes to the curriculum at, at the level of, of you know, uh, of public education, uh, of, it, of primary and secondary education are good, right? I support them. But there are a few red flags for me in the sense that, on the one hand, yes, invasion is named, um, a more accurate picture of history is purported, etc. But at the same time, if you notice, there's more, there's a lot of talk of cultural diversity. Mm -hmm. um, and I think what we have there is a kind of a mashing together of things, um, which is something that Australia, you know, is very, has, has done very typically over time. Mm -hmm. It's a talk of itself as a quote unquote successful multicultural society. So more respect for cultural diversity, which nobody, I'm sorry, not arguing against, but it's often offered as a panacea to mm. ongoing, you know, structures of, as I said before, racial uh, exploitation, etc. And I think time has shown that that is insufficient, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing I want to say about those changes. I, and I think I've noticed, and Debbie and I also wrote about this in another article in Quirky Magazine, that there's been this kind of worrying tendency uh, within some educational, you know, among educators to collapse together what we would call an analysis of racial literacy. So in other words, what tools do we need to expose the functionings of race within education, right? And um, talk of culture. 
And I think these are two distinct things that need to be kept relatively separate in terms of solutions, right? So that's one thing. In terms of higher education, which is obviously where I sit, there's, there's basically no funding whatsoever or, or institutional support to do uh, teaching or research on race. Mm. It's up to individual, um, you know, lecturers, etc., to to do that work. But there's no there's no structure within within which to do it. And in fact, there have been some worrying changes to the funding landscape last year when the Australian Research Council changed what are called the fields of research codes. We used to have a code under sociology uh, called race and ethnic relations, which was imperfect. In mm-hmm. fact, I argued against it because. Um, Okay, for various reasons that we don't need to go into here, but too complex. But the point is that I argued for a more general race studies category mm. that I think could incorporate everybody and would allow you know, a greater diversity of research coming under race. But what they did was that they actually gave us three new codes. And you would think on its face that this was a great idea, but if you look at what the codes are, they are race and history, race within law, and within criminology. So in mm. other words, race is either in the past, it's something exclusively to do with law, or it's something to do with crime. And I think we can already see how problematic that yeah. is when we want to actually try to expose the functionings of race. So effectively, it means that people like me doing race-critical decolonial research cannot get funded to do this work. Yeah, it is absolutely a shame. And I mean, I wish that we had more time to discuss it, um, but unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap. But where can, okay. uh, where can people read more of your work and find out a bit more about this? Well, um, I've got a website which is just under my name. So if you Google Alama Lenten, you'll come up with it. I'm running a new uh, unit called Understanding Race. I put all the resources online. I've spoken about it on 3CR before. Everybody's welcome to follow along. Um, yeah, so that's where you can find where I am. And obviously on Twitter when um, I try to stay away as much as possible, mm-hmm. but I am there. <laughs> well, awesome. Thank you so much, Alana. And yeah, really encourage people to check out that syllabus. It's awesome. I'm, uh, it's on my list of things to read. But thank you, Alana. Uh, Great. Thank you so much for having me, Priya. All right. And that was an interview with Alana Lenton, who's an associate professor of cultural and social analysis at Western Sydney Uni, who joined us to unpack some of the mystification and uproar about critical race theory. Hi, I'm Kutcher Edwards. Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison radio series, where we share the mic with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates in Victorian prisons. We started in 2002, and this year marks 20 years on the air. Be sure to tune in at 11am each morning from Monday, July the 5th to Friday, July the 9th for Beyond the Bars 2021 broadcast. For more information, head to our website, 3cr.org, au forward slash beyond the bar thoughts within visions I see daring to dream my destiny You're on 3CR Thursday morning breakfast. And finally today we have Tom Sayers joining us, who is a United Workers Union spokesperson and union organiser who is on site with striking General Mills workers at Rudy Hill in New South Wales who are fighting for wage increases and to protect conditions. Welcome, Tom. Good morning. 
Morning. So 90 workers at General Mills Factory in Rudy Hills, New South Wales, have been on strike since the 3rd of June without pay for that whole time. So that's coming up to three weeks. Could you just outline for us what the workers' demands are? Basically, what are they fighting for? Yeah, definitely. So as as you say, workers have been on strike for coming up on 20 days now, um, no pay. Uh, And this is a fight that's been entirely motivated by... uh, wanting respect and fighting for a fair wage increase and protecting the hard-won union conditions that they have built up over 25 years and just generally having a fair share of what they've produced for a multi-billion dollar multinational uh, that reaped enormous profits during the coronavirus pandemic uh, but have chosen the corporate greed path to try and uh, stifle workers' wage demand. So workers are looking at the moment, uh, they've had on the table three, three and three, so 3% a year for a 3% agreement. Their agreement uh, wage increases to be back paid uh, for the several months that they've been negotiating and more or less just to protect the conditions that they entered into this negotiation with. So the demands are, are really reasonable when you put them in context, um, but what we've seen is a company that's motivated very much by greed and uh, not wanting to pass on uh, any share of what they've they've um, that cream on the top that they've they've reaped during the coronavirus to the workers who actually made them that profit. Mm, absolutely, yeah. I, I was um, reading, you know, in the materials that you've put out in the Chuff campaign, just about how big those profits have been from General Mills during the coronavirus pandemic, and you know the extra work hours that workers have been working to kind of fill the demand and all that. And yeah, just to see then um, their demands dismissed. Is there any other um, background to this dispute that you wanted to give in terms of how long have they been fighting for before this uh, strike was called? So we were negotiating with the company from uh, mid-January here, um, but this has been a fight that's been building for a long time. Uh, I think General Mills is symptomatic of a broader problem in Australian society and, and the economy at the moment, which is that wage stagnation has really become entrenched. And, and so this fight is born out of not just like one EBA negotiation campaign, which has dragged on for several months, but it's really the result of, when you put that into context of previous pay increases that these uh, workers have received from the company, you know, the, the gradual driving down of that over, you know, five to ten years, this has been building for a long time. And it's been workers building up to a point where they say no more, um, putting out these products that everybody knows during the pandemic, Old El Paso, Latina, uh, and in the context of that sort of downward spiral that they, like many other workers, have been in dealing with these large, greedy multinationals. Um, They have drawn the line at this point and said that this is enough. Um, We need to make a stand and we need to fight for the respect and we need to actually get our fair share this time. Absolutely. Yeah, it's no small... um action to take to, you know, be without pay for such a long time and you can really see in that action that that these workers have had enough of being treated in this way and just not given their fair share of, um, yeah, basically their own hard labour. So I was wondering, I know that you're on the ground with workers, could you just give us an update on how things are going on the picket line and what morale is like? Yeah, so look, morale is excellent. I think that's a very long time 20 days to be on strike for any workers without pay. But these 
members are uh, absolute warriors. They have decided this is a fight that they need to see through to the end, and, and the morale is really uh, excellent. Um, excellent, uh, I think, is the best way to describe it. Uh, we have had a couple of sort of uh, things happen recently which have helped boost that. So yesterday we held a, a, a union rally um, just before the coronavirus the restrictions up here in Sydney came into effect. Um, and so we had community support, uh, support from the broader union movement, workers from other United Workers Union sites in the food manufacturing and other industries down here um, in front of the gate of General Mills to void the spirit. Uh, and workers have really lifted again from that. You know, they've, they've never really been deterred across the whole of this campaign. Um, but what's really kicked into gear, particularly in the last week, is that community support part of it. Uh, workers are feeling like, uh, as I mentioned before, this is uh, a fight that's not unique already, but it's also going to become more common uh, going forward. Um, this is a big issue. It's an issue that a lot of places, a lot of workers are experiencing around the country. And so their spirits have been buoyed by the fact that they have had a lot of other other workers reach out to them and attend the picket line and say, hey, your fight is our fight and we want to help you get over the line because this is a problem that is being experienced by us as well. That's so good to hear that community solidarity and support has been there and that you also um, were able to have that rally before those restrictions did come in. I was also wondering, another part of the demands that I was reading about was the demand for secure work. Um, I know casualisation is a problem at General Mills and, I mean, across so many industries now. I was wondering if you could speak a bit about that demand and also how this is affecting workers across industries that you support. Yeah, so I think the situation that we see at this site is is a very common one, and that is that over many years, uh, General Mills, like other companies, have built up effectively a second workforce, which um, in general, but particularly when it comes to situations like protected industrial action, um, they pit against each other. Uh, they pit against their permanent workforce and use it to drive down bargaining positions, drive down... Uh, industrial power. Um, so at General Mills, for example, on this Rudy Hill side, they have uh, on the books on a regular uh, on a regular week, you know, up to 50 to 60, sometimes even higher than that, labour hire workers. So in 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 the, the toughest part of insecure uh, insecure employment, and basically part of the fight has been one of our claims on the table from the beginning was that. Some of these workers have been there for 5, 10, some even 15 years um, without having any access to a permanent job. Uh, companies are using a loophole um, to get their labour and to, uh, to, to to use their skills, which they are clearly in possession of, but not to give them any of that two-way street where when it comes to permanency, job security, um, the status that comes with having a secure job in Australia. Um, so I think that's that's really the frame of the dispute, um, aside from the wages, that this is a company that, that's attempted to put into play its um, long-term strategy of building an insecure workforce alongside a permanent workforce um, to try and use them to break a strike. Um, uh, and also it, it sort of highlights the, the difficulties that comes with that and, and how bad it's gotten, like I said, 
this is not something that I or, or other workers around Australia um, find uh, uncommon or unique. Mm. It, it is it is an increasingly growing problem, and fighting for jobs that we can count on um, is becoming something that I, I think a lot of permanent workers who maybe have been in the workforce for a very long time uh, and, and casualisation in the sense of labour hire and third-party um, labour supply is, is a new thing, have realised is a fight that they need to take up as well because it's, it's uh, something that also is being used against them directly. Yeah, that's so important. I mean, yeah, that, it's just awful, that kind of double bind of it with, um, you know, the, the workers who are um, working in those labour hire positions are, you know, under very insecure conditions they don't have any of the kind of things like um, sick leave or holiday pay and then it's also used to undermine um, the permanent staff as as you say like to undermine um, the union union members um, I just wanted to go into some of the actions solidarity actions that um, uh, supporters can get involved with I've seen there's been um, uh, handles tending, uh, sorry, hashtags t- trending on Twitter and other actions taken on social media. Could you talk a bit about what people can do to support um, the workers at General Mills? Yeah, definitely. Um, so we called on the community just yesterday at our union rally out the front of the side um, uh, to to really take it to the company in a public sense and uh, show them that. Yeah, everybody loves Taco Tuesday um, and all the Paso Tacos. Latina Fresh Pasta is a really well-known brand and it would be a staple for a lot of families across the country. Um, but we need the community support to show uh, the company that people want this product because they are quality um, and because they trust the brand. And, and where that comes from is having a unionised workforce that's treated and respected fairly. And that without those elements, uh, like underpinning these products, that people will pass on them. So what we arranged yesterday was a bit of a Twitter storm, um, really activating that broader community support, which I mentioned earlier, um, to target the company and its brand and to, to really say to them that, the, the, that people will start uh, passing on these products that they make, these very well-known products, until... Um, there's a, a resolution that the workers are happy with. And so we were using hashtags and still doing um, pass on El, old El Paso uh, and leave Latina. And uh, I think as of about 12 o'clock yesterday until the coronavirus stuff set in in Sydney, um, it was trending at number one and number three, I believe, those hashtags in, in Australia. So I, I think that community support has really got a big, Weight of power behind it, uh, and is one of the one of the things that the company, like you know, will will be hit by, will stand up and take notice of, um, because at the moment and and for many years. So true, Tom. Sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt, but we are quickly running out of time. But hopefully, um, we can get those hashtags up there again. Um, It was so good to hear from you and to hear about what's going on um, with the campaign. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. And that's the end and all we have time for on Thursday Breakfast. See you next week. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. While you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.